0: WNYC Studios is supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your shortlist of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Science Friday is supported by SunBasket. No matter your lifestyle, SunBasket caters to your kind of healthy. With delicious meal plans like paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, and vegan, with quick and easy recipes, you can enjoy a dinner full of organic produce and clean ingredients in as little as 15 minutes. Go to sunbasket.com Friday today to get up to $60 off.
1: Listener
2: supported. WNYC Studios.
0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flatow. I have been waiting months to open a discussion about our next topic. You know how they say timing is everything? Well, it's spring, and finally time to talk about one of my favorite subjects, bees. Perhaps you've seen them swarming. Now, you may think you know about bees, but you would be surprised by what you don't know. Certainly, I was and I am. And if you have any beekeeping questions or you want to know anything about Bees, our number is 844 724 844 talk or tweet us at SciFry, and uh, we will begin our discussion with a scientist who has spent 40 years following wild honeybees to their trees and intricately, intricately noting how they live, live their lives unfettered by human beekeepers, not living in confined, neatly stacked white boxes, and he has some ideas about how understanding the wild bees better could help us cultivate the domestic ones so they survive the threats that seem to be imperiling their survival today. Dr. Thomas Seeley, professor of neurobiology and behavior at Cornell University, author of the new book, The Lives of Bees, The Untold Story of the Honeybee in the Wild. You can read an excerpt on our website, sciencefriday.com wildbees. Dr. Seeley joins us from Ithaca, New York, where he has spent most of his career learning about honeybees. Welcome back, Tom.
1: Thank you back, Ira. Thank you for having me back.
0: It's very happy to have you. Uh, have you. Uh, what What got you interested 40 years ago in the lives of wild
1: honeybees? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think it, it has something to do with um, admiring these bees that normally we think of as having to live under our supervision but seeing that oh no they actually can live in the wild and of course that makes sense that's where they started out and that's where they are still to a large extent today
0: mm-hmm. we talk a-, a lot about the plight of bees and pollinators right now the the varroa mites and other causes of colony collapse are wild bees having as tough a time as the kinds that we have in our hives
1: the answer is, no, they're not. They're not being receiving any treatments against the mites that you mentioned, these parasitic mites, and yet their mortality rates today in the 2010s are what they were back in the 1970s and 1980s when I first started studying the wild colonies.
0: It's interesting because you talk about in your book that you did notice that the bees in Ithaca did go through a population crash, though they were able to survive and, and come back without having to use a pesticide against the mites. How did they do that?
1: They accomplished that through the process of natural selection. We know from genetic analysis that, just as you said, the population went through a bottleneck. Only Probably only 10 or 20% of the colonies survived, but those have, have what it takes, and they have repopulated the forests around Ithaca.
0: All right, let's talk about, in specifics, what makes wild honeybees so resilient, and how different are they from the kinds that we see in, in the white box beehives?
1: Well, you you wouldn't be able to tell them apart at a glance, but they're a little bit smaller, but more important than the managed bees. But more importantly, they have some behavioral traits that um, are not good for the mites. Uh, they, for example, they're able to they're very good at chewing the legs off the mites, and mites die when that happens. They're also very good at um, opening up this, the brood cells uh, of their own brood cells, in which the mites are. These parasitic mites are reproducing, so they they, uh, they that hinders the reproduction of the mite. So they get them in both ways by reducing their survival and and toning down their reproduction.
0: Do they have other habits that can't be accomplished inside the managed
1: beehives? They well, there, there's a number of things that bees living in the wild do that that is different from bees living in managed hives, um, and it has to do with a lot of them have to do with The difference between living in a tree cavity and a managed hive, uh, a a beekeeper's hive, a beekeeper's hive is is actually quite large compared to a tree cavity of the wild home, wild colony's home, and that's intentional. It's because a beekeeper wants to give a colony lots of space to store up honey, but it also means that colonies under a beekeeper's supervision don't go through the process that we call swarming, and that helps the bees also resist the mites.
0: Are you saying that we are too self-centered about the honey production versus the general health of the bee population?
1: Yes, we are. Most beekeepers are focused on honey production and crop pollination, and that's a that's fair enough it's their bees uh, but it does make life harder for the, for the uh, for the honeybees themselves and I think every beekeeper would probably acknowledge that uh, it, it is it is uh, it's a management situation mm-hmm. um, I would say uh, I like to draw an analogy between uh, beekeeping is is a bit compared to living in the wild a beekeeper's hives live a life that's kind of like uh, the chickens on a poultry farm versus the birds that are living out in the woods, uh, and so it's they're living close together, they're large numbers, and they're just they're uh, very prone to diseases under management mm-hmm. in they're, both situations.
0: There's also something wild bees do to their nests with antimicrobial tree sap, right? Tell us about that.
1: Yes, that is a, that's a good point. That's another thing that they do. They collect tree resins and the trees are producing these resins to seal off wounds of them of their own and those are those uh, resins are filled with antimicrobial materials and the bees collect them can bring home little loads of them and they smear those loads they coat the walls of the insides of their nests and that experiments have been done that shows that if bees live in a in a hive that has that on the walls um, the level of activity of the immunity genes of the bees is lower than it is if the bees are living in a, in a hive the wall, whose walls do not have these resins on them. Mm-hmm. Now so they, they, they really... Sorry.
0: No, don't go ahead. Finish,
1: please. So so we know that these these resins not only work in the laboratory but they also work in the hive in terms of fighting infections.
0: What else? give us more of an idea also, about what's difference in structure and function from a, a little hole in a in a tree where the wild bees live to the the big white box that we have?
1: Well, we we've talked a little bit about the the most conspicuous difference, the difference in the size, but there are many, there are quite a number of other differences. I'll just mention a few. One is insulation. Uh, A beekeeper's hive is only three quarters of an inch thick wood, whereas a tree cavity, the home of a wild colony, can be five, eight, ten, twelve, twenty, twenty inches thick, and so there's a huge difference in insulation and thus the thermal stability of the, of the cavity homes of, between beekeepers' colonies and, and wild colonies. Another difference is the height of the entrances. Um, that might seem like a small fact, but it's it's actually really important to the bees, especially in the winter. Beekeepers' hives are close to the ground, and that's, of course, sensible. That's You want your bees down where you can work on them easily. Bees in the woods, their entrances, their nest entrances are typically 20 or more feet off the ground, and that Makes a difference in the winter, Uh, when bees have to fly out in the cold. When they come out of a a tree cavity hive uh, home, they're not right next to the snow. So if they if they're a little shaky in their flight, they don't crash into the snow and get and and get killed. And whereas beekeepers see a lot of that, and I'm a beekeeper, I see a lot of that in the winter.
0: Interesting. I uh, we know that the there are really no native honeybees. In the, the United States, correct that they, they all have come in from
1: from Europe or other
0: places.
1: Uh, yes, that's that is correct. There used to be. We now have scientists found about ten years ago a fossil honeybee in Nevada. So there, once thirty million, well, forty million years ago, there were honeybees in North America, but they they went extinct when the when we went through a cooling period. So all of the colonies we have in North America now are. Are in, introduced from Europe.
0: Can can we say that even domesticated bees are truly domesticated?
1: Good question. Um, not in the not in the full sense. Um, when we say we domesticate a species, that means usually that we not only change where they live, bring them into close to, close to where we're living, but that we've also changed them dramatically in terms of their genetics by controlling their breeding. If you think about the difference between a wild pony and a, and a racehorse, you see that. We haven't done that with honeybees, and that is because we do not do a, have the ability to easily control the matings of honeybees.
0: Hmm. And uh, do, do some people want to do that?
1: Yes, there, is, there are breeding programs of honeybees, and people have done that in a number of in a number of times. They've bred for resistance to a disease called American fowl brood. They've also bred for pollination ability on particular crops. But it's really hard to maintain those lines yeah. because as soon as one queen dies and, and a replacement queen comes along, that replacement queen, she goes out on her mating flights and she will mate with whatever drones she encounters. And so the control of the breeding is, is quickly lost.
0: Give me a quick uh, rundown on how you find wild honeybee nests. It was fascinating how you set up traps for them and you mark the bees and you basically watch them come for food and they fly back and forth to their nests in, in the wild.
1: Yes, that's right. This, this is, um, I use a craft called bee hunting or bee lining, which has been done for hundreds of years, uh, probably even goodness, probably hundreds of years in North America, probably thousands and t- or tens of thousands of years in, in the old world, um, where yes, you find bees on flowers or by a or by a spring of water, and you entice them with a a little bit of honey on a comb, or sugar syrup on the comb, and the bees. Uh, like that very much. It's a much richer food source than they would find naturally and they go home, they bring their sisters and um, you develop a, a an aerial, tra- they provide you with an aerial trail back to their nest. That's fascinating. And and if you have good eyesight and you're patient, you can step by step work your way down back down that trail by moving your little feeding station towards their home. That's
0: great. Uh, Tom Seeley is author of The Lives of Bees: The Untold Story of Honeybees in the in the Wild. We're going to time stay with us. So we're going to take a break and come back with uh, Tom and talk more about. How you can be a beekeeper. Everything you want to know about bees, maybe you would like to be a beekeeper yourself. We'll give you some tips on how to do that. Our number, 844 724 8255. Also, a little bit later, my adventure with finding a swarm of bees in Midtown Manhattan and how the NYPD has its own beekeepers to take care of things like that. It's quite fascinating. We hope you'll stay with us. Stay with us right after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. We're talking this hour about honeybees living in the wild and in hives. We want to know from you, do you have a beekeeping question or you want to know anything else about bees? Our number, 844-724-8255. Also, you can tweet us at SciFry. My guest is Dr. Tom Seeley, professor of neurobiology and behavior at Cornell University. He's sort of the beekeeper's beekeeper. He's been doing this so long. He's got a new book out, a great new book called The Lives of Bees. Well, I want to bring on another guest now who's interested in all kinds of things from honeybee health to whether probiotics might give bees a boost. Elena El Nino is an apiculturist and extension specialist at the UC Agriculture and Natural Resources Division, that's at the UC Davis. Welcome to Science Friday, Dr. El Nino.
3: Thank you, Ira. It's great to be with you.
0: Nice to have you. Uh, one of the, your interests is is what makes a healthy queen bee. Have you figured it out yet?
3: I wish I could say I have, but I, not yet. We're working on it. Um, that's sort of my... Long lifelong passion, I would say. And it's going to probably make a career, I hope, <laughs> for me. But we're working on it. We're definitely are finding some very interesting things about queens. And as Tom said, we still don't know everything about bees, which is what makes this uh, field of study great and fun
0: i understand speaking of fun i understand that you're looking into giving bees probiotics tell tell us about that
3: i am this is a new adventure for us in the lab as well we um connected with researchers at the university of western ontario london uh dr gregory reed and dr brendan daisley and uh we've been working with them we just started this this bring and we're feeding them probiotics and protein patties and uh, sugar water and we're hoping that it will actually boost their immune response um, and help them out um, fight off some of the diseases and issues that they have. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, Tom, what are some of the things that we can practically change to make our domestic bees more comfortable?
1: Well, there's two parts to that answer, Ira. I'd say we can um, work with their genetics, and we can work with their living conditions. And with respect to the genetics, um, we could we could breed from colonies that uh, lines of bees that are living out in the wild because they have the right genetics. Uh, that we know that their genetics is different, and in ways that give them behaviors to fight the mites. And in terms of the living conditions, there I think if we can adopt beekeeping methods that allow the bees to live closer to the way they do in the wild. And I think that is actually realistic for hobby beekeepers. And then that would, changing their living, their living conditions or lifestyle, it would also be helpful to the bees.
0: Are they, are they scrunched up in those little boxes? I mean, they look so many bees. How many have 20,000 bees in a box or in a, in a hive, Tom? I mean, they, it seems like such close quarters in there
1: it is close quarters. That aspect of their closeness uh, is, however, not unhealthy. I mean, that that's healthy for the bees. What's unhealthy is the scrunching up of the hives in apiaries. In the wild, they live about a 1,000 meters apart, whereas in a beekeeper's apiary, they're less than one meter apart. And the that gets the bees into trouble because if one colony gets sick, diseases can spread easily to to the adjacent colonies. Hmm. Very different in the wild.
0: Elena, uh, did you want to say something?
3: Um, so yes, I, I think well obviously I followed Tom's work for a long time now and um, it's really really interesting and he's absolutely right. the beekeepers that we, think about, when you think about beekeeping, do definitely keep their colonies very close. And that definitely can cause issues with uh, pathogen and pest transfer as well. Um, and especially if you're bringing in the pollinating colonies, so colonies that will pollinate many, many, um, for example, almond orchards, that's a, I, I like to say it's a most popular and mo- the biggest pollination event in the world in February, um, where almost 80% of the st- Countries' colonies come into California to pollinate almonds. So it definitely can cause uh, potential issues with disease and pest transfer.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's go to St. Augustine where Sydney is there. Hi. Hi. Hi there.
3: Um, I just had a question.
4: I heard that when bees pollinate almonds, they actually, the byproducts they use uh, for almonds harm bees. Is that true?
1: Tom? elena, i'm gonna I'm gonna d- d- defer to Elena uh, on this one.
3: Um, so when you say byproducts, What exactly do you mean? Do you mean like um, perhaps pesticides, fungicides that they're using to um, fight off the diseases of almonds?
0: She's dropped off the line, so we'll have to assume. Tell us what what your point is. (laughs) Yes.
3: So, um, yes, there's definitely some research showing that some of these uh, pesticides can be harmful to bees. And I think the Almond Board of California has done a wonderful job of coming out with the best management practices for pollination in almonds when the bees are present. So they're definitely promoting um, not using pesticides when the almonds are in bloom, uh, definitely not during the day when the bees are out foraging. And in fact, I just um, took a, a really interesting um, workshop on apivectoring, where the idea is to use honeybees to deliver biocontrol agents, so for lack of a better word, good microorganisms to plants and flowers that they're pollinating to actually fight off the pathogens and uh, in some cases even pest insects. So that could be something that could potentially replace these potentially harmful uh, pesticides that are being used in various crops. And I'm really excited about it. Yeah,
0: some of them are being banned now in Europe, even here, some of these pesticides, are they not? Yes. Yeah, uh, We we called up our friend uh, Hollis Woodard this week, assistant professor of entomology at the UC Riverside who studies wild bees, and she had this comment about honeybees.
4: There are no truly wild honeybees here in the U.S. They're a part of life here in the U.S., but in the context of agriculture, they're really livestock. So there are feral honeybees, but these are bees that have escaped at some point or swarmed from um, managed hives. So this matters because if your focus is on wildlife conservation in North America, then honeybees simply aren't a factor in that equation. And in fact, uh, there's growing evidence that uh, honeybees might actually be threatening our native bees in some ways. So we know, for example, that wild bees and honeybees, they visit some of the same flowering plants for food. So they might be competing for food resources. And then there's also increasing evidence that managed bees like honeybees are even spreading diseases to our wild native bee populations. And this includes some diseases that we think uh, or know are important drivers of native bee declines. So uh, honeybees are super fascinating and they're part of our agricultural system, but when it comes to pollinator conservation, for example, in the U.S., then we really need to keep the focus on our wild native bee species and not detract from that by supporting honeybees under the guise of conservation.
0: Tom Basili, how do you feel about that? She's making a difference between uh, honeybees, which are not native to North America, as you say, and wild bees. People do not realize how many wild bees other than honeybees are out there. Is she making a good point about being competitive detrimentally with those other bees?
1: I don't, I don't know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure she's correct, she knows that literature better than I do, but I, I do want to make a comment that there's different ways of defining wildness. Now, Dr. Hollis's definition emphasizes the history, whether the bee is introduced or is native, uh, she, equating native to wild. I'm not sure that's quite right. I think most biologists would say that an animal is wild if it's not being managed. By human beings. And by that definition, there certainly are wild honeybee colonies. They have, um, in fact, in New York State, there are, there are living out in the woods, by my estimates, based on my knowledge of the density, there are more wild honeybee colonies than ones under supervision by humans. So uh, mm-hmm. it comes down to how you, how you want to define wildness.
0: Any comment, Delena?
3: Um, So this is something, obviously, that um, has been on the back of people's minds when they're thinking about pollinator conservation, but it really would be, um, I guess, unfair to not point out that the honeybees are still used as the primary managed pollinator, and that is because of their uh, ability to actually be moved around the country, whether that's good or bad. Uh, Of course, we use them for honey production as well, uh, to use a sweetener, and um, some of the native bee species are not necessarily at times when we are needing them to pollinate crops of course one of the biggest ones again going back to almond pollination so I think that uh, it's probably fair to say that when we're thinking about n- probably native bee conservation um, we should be still thinking about honeybees and how to incorporate them within this uh, larger mm-hmm. agricultural system especially here in California because again not to be cliche but we do have to feed the country and the world, right? So um, from those sort of pragmatic perspective, well, I would argue that we could, we should think about both.
0: Mm-hmm. Tom, Stanley, if, if people are, are trying to rule out pesticides, how, how else would you combat the varroa, the deadly varroa mite that attacks the bees?
1: Thank you, Ira, for asking that question. Um, I, I would let natural selection solve the problem. And that's been done in several places of the world. Um, It's happened in our Cornell's Arnott Research Forest, where there's been nobody treating those colonies, but that population exists. An even better example um, is on an island, uh, on Gotland in the Baltic Sea, where Swedish beekeepers took out 150 colonies and just let them go. And And with the mites... The population dwindled to eight colonies, but is now rebuilding itself, based with uh, resistant the resistant stock. But the best example are those countries where the beekeepers were too poor to afford the miticide, the chemicals. These are in Africa, and you can go to a country like Ethiopia, when the colonies have lots of have varroa mites in them, but nobody's treated them, and those colonies are doing just fine. I think. It may be unrealistic, but if beekeepers in a location can get together and decide not to treat them, they will, within, I would guess, two or three years, have bees that they would be delighted in, and there's certainly commercial... A few commercial beekeepers that have taken that route. I'm thinking of Kirk Webster in Vermont.
0: You mean that you you allow bee Darwinism, the survival of the fittest? You let the bees that are are susceptible to Varroa die out, and then you have surviving the stronger bees take over?
1: Precisely. Precisely. And it's happened... We know that that has happened in many, many, many places. It is the only long-term solution. Beekeepers are probably going to run out of mit- effective miticides, and then that will be it um, for actually being able to control varroa. But maybe... Uh, maybe Dr. Nino has, has comments on that, too. She, she's a little closer to the, the technology of the treatments than I am. Dr. Nino?
3: Yeah, so um, I think thinking about this in terms of natural selection, I think I was reading on your website, Tom, um, talking about sort of a, depending on the area where you are. Here in California, for example, um, we have a really high concentration of beekeepers, whether that's backyard beekeepers or commercial beekeepers. Um, and I've noticed this in my own hives or laboratory hives that if we do treat but what happens is if other people don't treat or do something about their mites uh, there's a lot of drift that happens and the mites come in and they do kill off colonies. So um, relying on pesticides as a short term solution or for as a short term solution might be uh, again a short term answer but I do agree that and this is something that we've been thinking about for a long time now, um, that working towards um, breeding or letting a little bit of natural selection do its work carefully and slowly uh, is definitely something that there are beekeepers here in California who are taking that on, uh, breeding for local bees and breeding for bees that are able to withstand some of the issues that are in Mm -hmm. their local area. Um, So just,
1: you know, be careful. Can, can I can I add a little something to that we'll Ira? Give
0: me, just give me one second to jump in and say this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios and you can jump in now
1: okay <laughs> um, what uh, what Dr. Nino said about it requiring a community of beekeepers working together is precisely right and there are I, there's a wonderful example of that I want to share with you it's from Wales on one of the peninsulas in Wales. Um, the beekeepers uh, see well first of all, I should explain there's a law in the UK, United Kingdom that you have to treat your colonies, but these Welsh beekeepers, well, they see themselves as Welsh, not as English, so they the law may not apply to them, they feel anyhow, they got together and decided let's not treat our bees for Varroa and now they don't have to treat and it uh, but it's a good example of how it took a an agreement of, mm-hmm. among the community of beekeepers in an area to proceed along that course for it to work well. Mm-hmm.
0: Let me see if I can go to a quick question, a phone call before we go. Deborah in Converse, Texas. Hi, Deborah.
5: Hi, how are you today? Hi, go ahead. Um, with the influx of the Africanized bees that are seem to be migrating up into our area, how is that affecting your wild or even our hives in a box?
0: Tom? Good question.
1: I, I don't have firsthand experience with that because those Africanized bees don't survive winters in, in the Northeast. Um, uh, but those Africanized bees went through natural selection. They picked up Varroa in Central America, uh, South America. They went through selection for resistance to the Varroa, and that's why they, that's, that's why they have it. So in that sense, they're bringing, they're bringing relief um, as they come along.
0: Do we know have they have they been quote unquote tamed any by mixing in with the other populations of bees?
1: I think that happens initially, but they're so successful, they're so hardy that they their genetics um, uh, can it, unless there's a lot of commercial queens are brought into an area, the uh, the the population genetics switches over to African bees, and we've seen that in the mountains of Arizona, for example. They switch over switch the the african genes uh, hmm. become the uh, the genes of the population of honeybees in the area.
3: Elaine any
0: reaction to that before a break?
3: Oh, no, I think I completely agree uh, with the comment, and that is something that I'm probably a little bit more familiar with out here in California, because we do have a quite healthy population of Africanized bees, especially further down south. And um, thinking about human um, health and safety, uh, we don't recommend folks who want to keep bees to collect swarms. We do recommend them to requeen with a gentle stock, just because you want to keep in mind human and face uh, safety first.
0: Okay, we're going to take a break and come back uh, more with uh, Tom Seeley and with Elena and El Nino, and we're going to also talk about uh, local bees here and what happened in New York City last summer, and some interesting NYPD beekeepers. Stay with us. We'll be right at. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. If you're just joining us, we're talking about honeybees and hives and feral honeybees, bees out in the forests. with My guest, Thomas Seeley, professor of neurobiology behavior at Cornell University, author of a really great new book, The Lives of Bees, the Untold Story of the Honeybee in the Wild. And Elena El Nino, an apiculturist, like bees, apiculturist and Extension Specialist at uh, UC Davis. And we're taking your question and comment, your bee stories, like this one from our listener.
1: This is Catherine in South Orange, New Jersey, and um, I keep honeybees in my backyard with my young kids. I got interested in bees as a child in Ireland, where my father also kept honeybees. But now we've also learned about native bees. Through honeybees, we're learning about native bees and about how we can garden organically and plant lots of native plants to support all the bees and bugs in our yard. Hmm.
0: That's interesting. Uh, Tom, Alina, any response to
3: that? I I think that's great. I think we definitely, no, I really do. I think even within our, um, we have a California Master Beekeeper program that we started, and we do have classes that are specifically for that program and others interested in the community that teach about um, native bees as well and how to plant for bees.
0: Speaking of bee stories, I have my own unbelievable one. (laughs) Sorry, I had to get one of them in there. Um, And it's a true story. Last summer, I was walking down Fifth Avenue, and I noticed a crowd of people gathered, looking At something, you know, there's nothing unusual about crowds of tourists in New York, but this one was gazing at a swarm of bees that had camped out on a street vendor's (laughs) cart. A literal (laughs) carpet of bees covering these sunglasses that the vendor was selling. I took a video of this oddity. I I was marveling at, at the uniqueness of it in Manhattan until about a week later I was watching the local news reporting the sighting of another swarm, you know, over a few blocks over in Times Square where the bees had settled on a hot dog stand. And I bring all of this up now because it's my next guest job to corral swarms like that all over New York City. He's a beekeeper right here in New York, with a unique job. Police Officer Darren Mays is a department beekeeper at the NYPD. Welcome to Science Friday, Officer. Hi, thanks for having me. You uh, you have a, a, a you have some hives of your own for the NYPD?
2: I do. I uh, have uh, two uh, registered hives on the uh, roof of my command um, in Queens, just the 104 precinct in Ridgewood.
0: And tell us about that swarm in, that was very famous over in, in
2: Times Square. What happened to Um, that? Unfortunately, I wasn't the responding officer at that time. I have another partner's officer's name is uh, Mike Laureano. He worked downtown in the first precinct, so he was able to get there much quicker than I was. Um, and But I handled the, the uh, questions uh, via Twitter, so any questions people were having, I was um, answering the Twitter questions, but he was the one responding and backing them up. How did you get into beekeeping? Oh, (laughs) funny story. Um, I I, I had made fun of a friend of mine named Rich. Um, He was a type of guy who lives in Massachusetts, would start uh, hobbies and never was followed through with it. So one day my wife came home and said, Darren, guess what Rich is doing now? And I said, some crazy hobby, and I know he's not going to follow through with it. She said he's taking beekeeping classes. So I started laughing, and I was like... uh, what kind of hobby is that? Like, who would really want to take beekeeping classes? I immediately called him, and he said, Darren, I know you called to make fun of me. I said, absolutely, Rich. What kind of dumb idea are you into now? But he said, uh, don't don't make fun of me. Just wait until you uh, see what's going on and come see my hives and taste the honey I harvest and I never liked honey growing up. I remember as a child in South Carolina, my brother and I, uh, we went through a a farm, went action apiary, and we was on our bicycles and we kicked over some hives. And, you know, thinking about it now, and I, w- I would love to apologize to that couple <laughs> if I could. <laughs> so, uh, long story short, I went up to visit Rich Hive in Massachusetts. He said, come outside, and I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I went out and took a look at the hive and watched the bees come and go. I stayed about 30 yards away, said, come closer. I man I manned up and got a little closer and the next thing you know I was kneeling like 2 feet away watching them come and go with the uh you know with the pollen on their legs and uh he got up and walked away went in the house and left me outside and I didn't realize he was gone for an hour I looked up uh embarrassed and he him his wife my wife, they were looking out the kitchen window laughing at me how I was just fixated on those bees and then um I got up and my wife said, "Oh, you're very attracted to it right I said, no, it's not my thing you know honeybees are just gonna sting and uh she surprised me with a kit for Christmas she did all the research, found uh, you know a local beekeeper to sell me the bees signed me up for some classes, bought me a bunch of reading materials and that was it. You were hooked, so to speak. I was. You were stung. I was stung, and it was a. It is addictive, thing. isn't it? Very.
0: My, my my brother Carl has a th- couple of dozen hives, out in Long Island, and he. Uh He's addicted to this. And everybody you talk to, who comes in contact? Yes. Ariel Zitch, our education director, also keeps bees in her backyard. and That that brings us to two... I'm going to go to the phones, because that brings up two of the biggest questions all of our listeners have been calling in, and I'm going to go to those two questions right now. First, let's go to, uh, to Iowa. Jamie in Iowa. Hi, welcome to Science Friday.
4: Hi. Hi there.
0: Hi there. Go ahead.
4: Um, So we recently were cleaning out our garage, and in our frame, we realized that that we had wild bees coming in and out. And bees are a protected species in Iowa, and we were just wondering, um, these were not bees that we want in our garage, so what resources can we do to relocate these bees?
0: Officer, how do you get bees out of a space?
2: Uh, If, in fact, they're honey bees, um, you can call your local beekeeper. A local beekeeper will be happy to respond and remove them, no charge. And how do they do that, usually? Uh, If they can, usually they'll get a heat-seeking device where they can find out exactly where the bees is pretty much it to. And they would uh, have to cut into the wall, or mm-hmm. you know, if you sheetrock, uh, and gain access to them.
0: And, and 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 Tom, do you is there a way to attract the bees just to come out on their own?
1: No, they, they're they're very heavily invested in that in that home site with their <laughs> combs and things. So it it it, it just just it, the process is just as uh, Officer Mays explained. Have to do a, what we call a cutout. And, and cut out the combs. What if you bring them a hive?
0: Will they fly in themselves into the hive? If they see it.
1: Uh, no, no, as they say, they're they're <laughs> they've got so they've got all, they're all set up in in their. Uh, and they're uh, uh, they've got their food and their brood and their combs. It, it would be mm. f- foolish for them to jump ship into an empty box or a, even a hive that um, mm. has combs in it because it doesn't have the honey and the brood. So,
0: so, you, uh, so, Officer Mays, you you're the you're the guy people call. Who are you gonna call? <laughs> you're the guy that people call to get take the bees
2: out. Uh, to, yes. Uh, only if it's on. Um, if it's you know public public danger or uh, public. Because, you know, New Yorkers are very clueless, and they can walk into a swarm uh, <laughs> without paying attention to anything. So, yes. That's the least thing they do. <laughs>
0: Here, here's a tweet. All right. So the, here's the other end of this story. the story. Wh- what do you do if you have them and you want to get, get uh, you know, humanely take them away? Jake tweets, what advice do you give someone who's wanting to start Beekeeping?
2: Uh, my best advice is, like I said before, I did it, was um, do your research. Find out where you can join a local uh, uh, beekeeping association or a club where you can learn from others. And I did that and I learned from older gentlemen who were eagerly and happy to, to teach me the craft. So hmm.
1: research and read before you start. I, I, I really want to second that. Beekeeping is a craft and you learn it. Primarily by observing what an experienced beekeeper does, see how they handle the bees, what they do, what their equipment is like, all that stuff.
0: Elena, what about the the fear of getting stung? How do you overcome that?
3: Well, you just go in for it. (laughs) That's (laughs) probably the best thing. We've definitely had folks who have come into the class um, and were hesitant to go into the bees. But I think much like Officer Mace, they probably got mesmerized by bees and how amazing and cool these creatures are Um, and usually that's enough to get them brave enough to handle those frames of bees like pros Um, and I would just also like to add that one good way of learning is by doing so uh, looking for a mentor again Mm. um, is definitely something that would be beneficial to new beekeepers somebody who they can only not watch but also who can observe them and help them out so
2: that's what happened with me when I joined that association there were gentlemen who've been doing it for years I mean years and and there was two gentlemen that I kind of went under their wings and they were eagerly to show me and 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 i learned a lot from them
3: yeah
2: Yeah.
0: let's let's go to dick in tucson arizona hi dick hello hi there go ahead
5: um i was a beekeeper for about 45 years um a hobby beekeeper Uh, i had about 20 hives and i did what i called urban beekeeping i had the hives uh Two or three hives scattered around city parks in my backyard, in the neighborhood. And then our Africanized bees started coming in. Um, Back in the 70s and 80s, there were probably 200 hobby beekeepers. Um, I bet they're not 20 anymore. Uh, It's just too dangerous for a hobby beekeeper um, to keep bees in their backyard here because of the way the queens reproduce. Now, there are still wild bees around, or or honeybees around, but often they're just in an attic or a garage or a wall partition. Hmm. And every now and then, somebody bumps into them and gets attacked, and the word that I keep hearing around here that I just absolutely don't like is killer bees the killer bees are at it again but um they are a problem and it's really put the hobby beekeeper out of business
3: let me get a Elena, what do you think of that well it definitely as i mentioned before is a problem in uh southern california and again pragmatically people safety is the most important and it is unfortunate that um, we do get beekeepers who are new to the craft and they try to keep uh, bees that end up being Africanized and unfortunately they themselves then are not able to actually handle and check the bees um, so they have to call somebody to take care Mm. of them so it is a problem but um, we always again recommend if you collect a swarm in an area that you know has uh, Africanized bees try and requeen it first.
0: Am I this is science friday from wnyc studios i have a tweet for a shout out to the savannah college of art and design scadbees i have a spot in my heart for that cuz my daughter's alma mater and mm-hmm. uh the, we are in the finals, and like the real bees, could use support. <laughs> and if you go to Savannah, they have a wonderful bee store there. Oh yeah. Oh, they everything you need to take care of bees is right downtown. I can't remember the exact streets. Tom, uh, Alina, you know about that place? It's uh, it's great. Nope. Yeah. No, we neither. And, you know, one of the interesting things, and, and you mentioned this a little bit there, and um, about your first taste of raw honey. Yes. How different. I, I didn't like the taste of honey either of the store-bought kind, so I got some from my brother who's a beekeeper, and it is such a different taste. Is it, it, not?
2: it is um, what I've been eating prior to that, and, and never really liked it, and it's probably because I was eating um, probably corn syrup stuff, you know, um, not the real deal, but when I tasted my, my first batch of honey, the, the raw stuff, it was so good, so pure, it, it like, tingle your lips yeah, when, yeah, and, and your yeah. tongue when you
0: eat it. Absolutely. You can't describe it. Um, Tom, uh, you keep both kinds of bees. and You keep bees and you follow the wild ones. Do you have any advice for ways to appreciate bees without actually, like we're doing, keeping your own colonies?
1: Yeah. The the bee hunting process is a really good way to do it. This is what we talked about earlier, where you capture some bees off flowers and you work your way back to their hive. and The, re- the the reason that that's a good way to appreciate bees is that you're not dealing and you're not disturbing a whole colony. Um, you're just following a little group of bees, you've labeled them as individuals, you can really watch them. You can sit right, you can put your nose right up to those bees, and, and they're, they're not defensive, they're, and they're mm-hmm. just doing their job of collecting food. It's a, it's a, great, it's a great way to watch the bees. Mm-hmm. Um, and see just really this precise movements. How be what, what little bee, these little bees do.
0: Let me go to the, our last call from Blue Springs, Missouri. Tamara, well, hi. Welcome to Science Friday.
4: Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Hi, right, go ahead. Um, I recently moved to a city that doesn't allow beekeeping, so I was wondering what advice do you have to work with city officials to change the regulations so people can keep bees?
0: Officer Mays. New York didn't allow beekeeping uh, for yeah, many years. For They're,
2: many years, they brought it back in uh, 2010. Um, well, the thing is, um, you can kind of plead your case, and you know, a few of you can get together and, and, and just tell them, you know, the importance of pollination. Uh, you know, having pollinators and honey is one of the you know, is a, is a great pollinator for that for that area mm. and what have you.
0: All right. We, we have to stop there. So many calls about it. Uh, I want to thank all of my guest Officer Darren Mays who is a department beekeeper at the New York Police Department. Thank you for taking time to be Thanks with us today. Thanks for having me. Elena El Nino is an apiculturist and extension specialist at UC Davis. Tom Seely, professor of neurobiology, behavior at Cornell, author of the new book, The Lives of Bees, and we have an excerpt of the book along with pictures of the NYPD hotspots. Lives. Cool. Beekeeping tips lots more up on our website at ScienceFriday.com slash bees. Thank you all. Thank, Thank you.
3: you.
1: For Thank a, you. Say hi to Carl for me. I will
0: for a beautiful <laughs> segment. <laughs> Quick program note, our Sci-Fi crew just got back from a trip to Huntsville, Alabama, and thanks to all the folks and uh, WLRH for making our trip to the Rocket City so enjoyable. You'll hear more about that later as we get close to July. We're going to be hitting the road again this August, coming to San Antonio. Join us Saturday, August 10th, for Science Friday Live from the Lone Star State. We'll talk about Science. Science Stories in the San Antonio area. We're going to have live music and more. That's Saturday, August 10th. Info and tickets at sciencefriday.com slash San Antonio. Circle your calendar Saturday, August 10th. And if you're saying, hey, what about an event near me? Well, visit the events page on our website. Sign up for our events newsletter to find out when we might be in your neighborhood. We're going all over the country. B.J. Linderman composed our theme music, and if you missed any part of the program, we, can, we podcast. A few hours after we're done here, we'll have our podcast up there for you to download it. And uh, you can ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday whenever you want. So every day now is a Science Friday. Have a great and safe holiday weekend. Go out and see if you can find those bee colonies. Maybe there's a hive near you. I'm Ira Plato in New York. Science Friday is supported by IBM. Technology is becoming more open, data more accessible, and the world more innovative. IBM is combining their industry expertise with the open source leadership of Red Hat to bring you more freedom, more security, more flexibility. Let's unlock the world's potential. Let's put smart to work. Learn more at ibm.com slash redhat.